Welcome to another home-cooked episode of Down Ballot Counts. I'm Kyle Trigstad, politics editor at Bloomberg Government. And with me, as always, is senior reporter Greg Giroux. It's Monday, May 4th. It's week eight of potting from a distance. But more importantly, we've crossed a mile marker in the election year. Yesterday marked six months until Election Day. So we'll talk about where things stand, what we know and what we know we don't know. After that, we'll break down a campaign ad that hit the airwaves last week and stood out among the rest. We were there with 99% of the precincts counted. Number of other key down ballot races. This is a very dramatic turn. We will have to look. House will be in order. Chair requests that members clear the aisle, take seats, and cease audible conversation. From Washington, this is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. Up first is Jerome's gem. Jerome's gem, my number of the week is 69. That's how many years it's been since someone in Congress formally served as a member of a recognized political party other than the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. Congressman Justin Amash of Michigan last week formally joined the Libertarian Party and announced a campaign for the presidency as a member of that party as he finishes a decade of service in the House representing Michigan's 3rd Congressional District in and around Grand Rapids. Amash served as a Republican until July 2019 when he became an independent, the only one in the House, and he is now a Libertarian. While we've had independents serve in Congress, including current Senators Bernie Sanders of Vermont and Angus King of Maine, the last member of Congress to formally align with a recognized political party, other than the major two political parties, was Vito Marcantonio of New York. He was originally elected in 1934 as a liberal Republican, lost re-election in 1936, and then was elected in 1938 under the banner of the far-left American Labor Party and won five more terms. In an infamous 1950 Senate race in California, Richard Nixon drew similarities between the voting records of Democratic opponent Helen Gahagan Douglas and Mark Antonio. He was defeated for re-election in 1950 and left Congress at the end of his term in January 1951, so just over 69 years ago. And that, Kyle, is your Jarreau's Gem of the Week. All right, that was a good one. All right, after the break, we'll dig into the electoral landscape. This is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. We are six months from the election. We're essentially at the start of the presidential general election, and we're in the middle of a pandemic that has completely changed the conversation about what the race for the White House will be decided on. And with that, just how vulnerable Republicans' Senate majority is. There's little talk these days about Ukraine or impeachment or socialism, for that matter. Um, Instead, it's a daily assessment of President Trump's handling of an international crisis that touches every single American's life every day. Greg, this is about as drastic a curveball as you could imagine cropping up in an election year. Yeah, we really are in uncharted political waters, Kyle. You know, we look back at some you know, political ads that some campaigns were running in January and February, and they're, they're taking much different messages now. You know, I look at a, for example, a the Senate race in Arizona, one of the top tier Senate races that will determine whether Republicans keep their 53 to 47 majority in the Senate. I looked at an ad from Martha McSally, the Republican incumbent there, appointed uh, at the end of 2018 in a tough race. And she ran ads attacking her likely Democratic opponent, Mark Kelly, uh, for supporting the impeachment inquiry of President Trump and also linking him to Bernie Sanders, who in mid-February seemed like he was going to win the Democratic presidential nomination. But how much things have changed in the last two and a half, three months, Kyle? You have um, Sanders is not going to win the nomination. Joe Biden will. That's probably a sigh of relief to to some you know mainstream 
Democratic political operatives and certainly a lot of candidates who would prefer to share a ballot with Biden rather than Sanders. So you have that uh, drastically changed the last couple of months. And then, you know, more importantly, as you just alluded to, the the uh, kind of the issue matrix of the election. You know, we heard a lot about impeachment and the booming economy a few weeks ago, but with the pandemic, the economy has also taken a free fall with high unemployment. And um, uh, that's certainly changed the conversation uh, we're seeing in a lot of these campaigns that will determine whether Democrats keep their House majority and Republicans can keep their Senate majority. Yeah. And so let's look at like the the exact numbers. I think if no House seats change hands in a special election for the rest of the year, Republicans need to pick up 18 seats to win the House majority. Democrats need at least three seats to win the Senate, but they'll need four if Trump wins re-election. Um, with three, the vice president would break a tie there. So those are the numbers. Um, I believe it hasn't been since 1952 that the House has changed party hands in a presidential election year. Is that right, Greg? That's a long time. Yeah, that sounds right. Um, it sounds right to me. Yeah, so it's feeling like the House is probably less likely to flip. The Senate looks more and more possible to flip. Now, Democrats still need to unseat a bunch of incumbents to do that. And, and that's sort of where it gets uh, a, a little tricky. Um, we also don't have a ton of Senate polls right now, um, but the ones we have seen um, have looked pretty good from you know Arizona um, to Colorado to Maine, uh, North Carolina. Uh, that's the basis uh, of the Democrats' path uh, to the Senate majority. Um, and while we don't have a ton of Senate polls, um, we have seen a lot more presidential polls, um, and we've been able to see uh, Trump's approval rating, um, which has been remarkably um, consistent between 43 and 46 percent for much of his um, presidency. That's what makes it a little bit uh, tougher uh, for Republicans um, who, are, who are needing to hold the Senate. Yeah. And um, as you mentioned, Trump's approval rating has kind of stubbornly remained in the kind of around the mid 40s, really hasn't gotten above 50 percent, maybe a blip here or there and sometimes in the low 40s, but stayed pretty consistent in the 40s there. So he's not giving, as of yet, the Republicans the lift at the top of the ticket. They probably need to certainly win the House, which is pretty tough for them. But, um, you know, the lower that, um, you know, Trump's approval rating is, the tougher it becomes, you know, for the Republicans to keep control of the Senate. You know, congressional election results are moving more and more in tandem with presidential election results. You've got Colorado and Maine, which voted Democratic for president in 2016, the only two states to vote Democratic for president, where Republicans uh, have senators there now running for election. Uh, Cory Gardner in Colorado, Susan Collins in Maine, of course. Uh, the amount of money that the Democratic candidates are raising in some of these races, you know, Sarah Gideon, the likely Democratic opponent against Susan Collins, $7 million in a quarter, the first quarter. Mark Kelly running against Martha McSally, $11 million in a quarter. These are amounts of money that you expected candidates for the Senate to raise in an entire election cycle, you know, and certainly not in a one quarter of fundraising. It just kind of shows just how much Senate races have become more nationalized. They're galvanizing donors and activists all over the country, just not, you know, outside, well outside of their own states. And it really, I think a lot of people really see the high stakes um, for the Senate elections, including votes on Supreme Court justices and judicial court nominees. All right, a couple more metrics for you. Uh, I was looking at 538.com. Uh, uh, they have a lot of polling averages along with Real Clear Politics. Um, I love all those sites. Um, but the generic ballot, 
generic Democrat versus generic Republican. Uh, Democrats tend to have an advantage in this, but their advantage right now is a lead of eight percentage points. Um, So that's a positive sign for Democrats there. Um, And then uh, 538 had averages of Biden versus Trump matchups in Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. Those are the three key states in the presidential election. Um, and then also Florida and North Carolina. And Biden led Trump in all of them from by between six and one point. Trump, his campaign is seeing those numbers. Republicans are seeing those numbers. Um, and I think we're going to start seeing some changes in, in rhetoric uh, from Trump and from Republicans um, because of that. Now, we've already seen uh, a super PAC supporting Trump uh, go up with an ad uh, hitting Biden, right? So they want to change the conversation. They want to make this about Biden, um, who, you know, we have to mention is also has also faced uh, an allegation of uh, sexual assault from uh, his Senate days. Um, and so we're, we're watching, you know, how that's playing out as well. Um, but then a super PAC uh, supporting Biden, Priorities USA, came up with an ad uh, last week running in Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin that says Trump downplayed the coronavirus threat, he ignored the experts, and overall is just completely bungling the response uh, to this pandemic. Um, That's a direct strike at the center of his campaign's focus. Yeah, and six months certainly is an eternity in politics. We've seen that, you know, a lot can change just in two months, as we mentioned at the top of this conversation. In mid-February, we were talking about a booming economy and you know, maybe Bernie Sanders and the, how nervous some Democrats were, you know, in House races where um, House Democrats have to defend seats that Trump won in 2016, how, how nervous some of them were about maybe sharing a ballot with Bernie Sanders. So we've had a kind of a change there. We've had a change in the issue conversation, of course, from you know a booming economy to one that's where a lot of people are really struggling amid this you know, coronavirus pandemic. Um, so, yeah, we've seen that can, a lot can change in just a, a short period of time. We still got six months to go. It's clear, though, that this uh, the pandemic and um, you know w- what happens with that's probably going to be a major issue come November. You know, over on the Senate side, you know, we mentioned kind of like those big four Senate races: Colorado, Maine, Arizona, North Carolina, where the Republicans have uh, difficult seats to defend. Um, the Democrats have a tough one in Alabama, and they have to keep an eye on Michigan. Maybe um, then you've got some that are in the second tier. You kind of have to keep an eye on like Iowa, where Joni Ernst is running for election. Georgia, you have two races, including one where. Kelly Leffler is seeking election in her own right in a special election that um, probably won't be decided until January of 2021 because that's a all candidate all uh, single ballot race. And you've got uh, you know Senate races in Kansas and Montana, which are very Republican leaning states, but where you know Democrats have good candidates and in Kansas where they could benefit from some you know frat- fratricidal uh, Republican primary. Uh, fireworks over there. That's right. And uh, we will have to leave it there. um, And we'll have to see how things unfold over the next six months. But speaking of Kansas, up next, there's no place like Kansas on the Senate map. And we'll hear an ad on the airwaves there now. Chris Kobach let President Trump down. Kobach demanded Trump give him a taxpayer-funded jet to accept a job. Now, Kobach's Senate campaign is being bankrolled by an anti-Trump D.C. special interest group. Trump called the Club for Growth pathetic and phony. We have the Club for Growth, which is to get him. They're a fraud. They're crooked. Now Trump is done with Kobach. Chris Kobach will lose again, and the liberal radicals will be back in charge. That was an ad from a super PAC called the Keep Kansas Great PAC. 
A laser direct hit on Chris Kobach, an immigration hardliner and former Kansas Secretary of State who lost a race for governor in 2018. That's where the he'll lose again line comes from. There is legitimate concern on the Republican side that he will emerge with the nomination on August 4th, which is three months away. Greg, what stood out to you about this one? Yeah, I think it was that last sentence of the ad that you just mentioned, Kyle, was when the narrator says, you know, menacingly, Chris Kobach will lose again and the liberal radicals will be back in charge. Uh, you see the ad and they show images of Chuck Schumer, who's a Democratic leader in the Senate, the Senate Minority Leader, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, uh, liberal you know, senators, of course, that uh, Republicans like to use um, in ads attacking Democratic candidates, of course. So this raises the specter of a Democratic Senate majority if Kobach you know, becomes the Republican nominee. The beginning of the ad also makes an unflattering reference to Kobach's demands um, when he proposed becoming Trump's immigration czar. And this ad is by a pro-Marshall super PAC, Keep Kansas Great PAC, which has three donors to date, including two Kansas businesses and a South Dakota-based biofuels company. So just want to point that out um, to tell viewers a little bit more about the, you know, the, the people who are behind the super PAC ad. It also attacks the Club for Growth, which is a conservative activist group that has run ads attacking Marshall for voting for some of the same spending measures that most Republicans have supported. And uh, the Kansas Republican chairman, I might add, has asked some of the lesser known candidates in this Republican primary to withdraw, which was definitely a shot across Kobach's bow as uh, the chairman fears a divided field would allow Kobach to win with the plurality of the vote even. So this is quite the Donnybrook, Kyle. And it's an election we'll be monitoring closely through the Republican primary in early August and probably the November general election because the Democrats do have a legitimate candidate there who's well-funded. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, Congressman Roger Marshall, probably the uh, establishment favorite, if that if that uh, even means anything anymore. Um, but you also have State Senate President Susan Wagle. Uh, you have a plumbing company owner uh, named Bob Hamilton. Um, you got a few other uh, people, a State Board of Education member, Steve Roberts, uh, a few others. Uh, it's, it's a wide field, and that's why the concern about Kobach uh, is there. Um, and of course, on the Democratic side, you have State Senator Barbara Bollier, um, who's been, I believe, endorsed by the National Party. Um, and uh, Democrats are holding out hope that Kobach gets through, <laughs> uh, which is kind of a funny dynamic. Um, all right, we'll leave it there. And uh, before we close the show, we've got a parting shot of trivia for you. This is Down Ballot Counts. It's trivia time on Down Ballot Counts. Each week, I try to stump Kyle and you, the listeners, with a political trivia question. As always, let's review last week's question. I asked how many states that voted for President Trump in 2016 have Democratic governors today? Kyle, what do you have for me? Uh, I'm taking a shot in the dark, unfortunately, but I'm going with six. Six. Okay. It's a bit more than that. There are actually eight. Wow. And going alphabetically by state, they are Laura Kelly of Kansas. Uh, she's the uh, Democrat governor who beat uh, Chris Kobach in 2018. You have Andy Bashir of Kentucky, John Bell Edwards of Louisiana, Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan, Steve Bullock of Montana, Roy Cooper of North Carolina, Tom Wolf of Pennsylvania, and Tony Evers of Wisconsin. I'd note that Cooper's up for re-election in November in Bullock. Term limited in Montana is running for the Senate. So if you got that one correct, congratulations. We also posed the question as a poll on Twitter, and a person under the name Ann Hidalgo 2020 was very fast on the draw with the correct answer that also itemized 
all eight states. So well done. And now for this week's question, I'm going to make it harder. So uh, Kwaizi Umfume, a Maryland Democrat who won a special election last week for the House seat formerly held by the late Elijah Cummings, will be rejoining Congress more than 24 years after he resigned from the chamber in February 1996. That 24-plus year gap, while very large, isn't the longest such gap in history, not even close, in fact. My question is, what is the longest period in years separating a House member's non-consecutive House tenures? You may email your answer to bgovpodcast at bgov.com or tweet it at us using the Bloomberg government Twitter handle at bgov and use the hashtag downballotpod. We'll reveal the answer and ask a new question on next week's episode of Down Ballot Counts. That's it for us today. Before we go, Greg, what else are you watching this week? Kyle, the Senate returns this week, but the House does not. It's also the last full week of campaigning for a pair of special elections, May the 12th in California's 25th district, a Democratic-held seat that's competitive, and Wisconsin's 7th district, a more Republican-friendly area. We also have the Nebraska primary that day, and we'll have more to say about those elections on next week's program. And I am watching the return of Billions to Showtime. Last week I said goodbye to Homeland. Well, hello to Billions. I came back uh, with a great first episode of the season. Uh, so I'll be, I'll be watching that again next weekend. I'll note here that Michael Bloomberg, the majority owner of Bloomberg government's parent company, sought the Democratic presidential nomination. He endorsed Joe Biden on March 4th. The producer for Down Ballot Counts is David Schultz. You can follow us on Twitter at Kyle Trigstead and at Greg Giroux. And be sure to check out all the great politics coverage on Bloomberg Government's website, about.bgov.com. We'll talk to you next week. Those nine justices in Washington, they can be pretty hard to keep track of. That's where we come in. I'm Jordan Rubin. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. On our podcast, Cases and Controversies, we give you a week-by-week accounting of the Supreme Court. The filings, the arguments, the opinions, and much, much more. So check in on Fridays with Cases and Controversies to find out what's coming up on the horizon at the Supreme Court. Download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.